Welcome to the Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Rob Santiago. And I'm Leah Todd. Hey, Leah. How's it going? It's going. It's going. Definitely missed you at the last podcast. I was out traveling, but as we're kind of ending 2019 and going into 2020, I just want to just say how thankful I am for you, Leah, in terms of just kind of holding down the fort and really guiding me and being a part of this podcast. So I definitely appreciate all of your work and your efforts. This is definitely a team thing, and I'm definitely glad to be part of this with you. Thanks so much, Rob, and I appreciate you keeping things chill because it can be hard in this place. You know, we had a fun little holiday party recently, which was very wholesome and full of feasting. I was like, please give me literally several of everything so I can eat it. Thank you. That was a nice little nice little time. So that was fun. So that's what we got going on here aside from piles and piles of work as usual, which you'll hear about in a minute. Are you excited for your upcoming holiday season? I I am. I am. Yeah. I just probably gonna take my family out for a little getaway, probably out of town for a little bit with some family and some friends. Just did a little family photo session. So that was very interesting. Just for simple fact that my two-year-old is no longer the one-year-old who listens. Mm-hmm. So we had two minutes to get a great photo session in. So it was uh, definitely interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing the results of the film. Pretty Sometimes much. those are pretty classic. Pretty much are, especially yeah. since he was screaming. Yeah, crying baby next to Santa. Everyone looking stressed. Yeah. Classic Christmas yeah. moment. He wasn't even with Santa. Moment. There was no Santa. It was just him running around screaming. Just didn't want to take photos. And then just seeing strangers look at us. It's a vignette from real life, (laughs) which is what you'll remember anyway. Exactly. And we all have the photos to prove it. (laughs) Indeed. Well, we've got a really great episode ahead for you all. So stay tuned for that. Senior Staff Attorney Darius Cherney speaks with Antonine Pierre of the Brooklyn Movement Center and Mariel Siobhan Smith of Black Love Resists in the Russ. Two leaders of Black-led grassroots organizations doing critical racial justice work on opposite ends of New York State. They discuss the strong similarities in police abuses happening in New York City and in Buffalo, their work to divest from harmful institutions and instead invest funds into their own communities, the need for further transparency about and accountability for police misconduct, and how action from New York's legislators and attorney general could address these issues. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and any other platforms that you use. Welcome to the Activist Files. I am Darius Charney, a senior staff attorney here at the Center for Constitutional Rights, where I work with my CCR colleagues and our movement partners to fight against the criminalization of dissent, mass incarceration, discriminatory policing, and racial injustice. Today, I have the great pleasure to be speaking with two super dope activist organizers from two of my favorite black-led grassroots organizations who are doing racial justice work on opposite ends of New York State. First, from the borough of Brooklyn in New York City, we are joined today by Antonine Pierre. Antonine is a founding staff member and the current deputy director of the Brooklyn Movement Center, where she works to implement BMC's organizing strategy and its capacity to nurture social and political leadership in central Brooklyn. 
She directs the organization's efforts in base building and leadership development, and she also leads BMC's issue campaigns on police accountability and anti-street harassment. I'm also joined today by, from the Queen City, as they like to call it, Buffalo, New York, by Marielle Smith. Marielle is a community organizer with Black Love Resists in the Rust, where she does organizing, political education, and leadership development in black and brown communities across Buffalo, with a focus on ending oppression enforced by the state and significantly shifting the material conditions for Buffalo's residents. I also should note that Black Love is a client of mine in a current federal class action lawsuit against the Buffalo Police Department where we are challenging its abusive and racially discriminatory vehicle checkpoint and traffic ticketing practices. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to start the conversation today really focusing on issues of discriminatory policing and police accountability or, or lack thereof. Um, and specifically, I, I wanted to let our listeners hear about and, and understand about how, even though you guys are, you know, working on opposite ends of the state, the issues that you and your communities are facing around policing are very similar and that the work you're doing and the, and the, the strategies you guys are using are very, very similar. So, Anthony, could you start us off maybe by telling us a little bit about what the most kind of pressing policing issues BMC is working on right now with its members? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again just for having me on the show today. So BMC is a member-led community organizing group in Central Brooklyn, and we define Central Brooklyn as Bedside and Crown Heights. And if you're familiar with Bedside and Crown Heights, then you know that it's a longtime Black neighborhood that is under siege of gentrification. So when we look at policing, it's hard to not think about gentrification and how that's actually um, created systems, or I should say created more conditions of aggressive policing as white folks, and specifically white folks who have a little bit more money than the people who sort of built up Bedstar and Crown Heights start to move in. But the policing that we often see and, and that our members are often subject to is often really aggressive car stops. Very often, we will also often see really aggressive aggressive street policing, particularly, I think the NYPD has started to, or I should say over the past maybe five or so years, has started to have these huge towers that have, that shine these super bright lights into people's homes late at night. And we see that we definitely see that happening year-round, and we see it happening. We see the towers placed more in areas where there's heavy gentrification because I think the where I should say because I think the NYPD thinks that putting bright, shining bright lights will make gentrifiers feel really comfortable and really safe, and will make longtime Black residents feel like they shouldn't commit crimes. And in reality. We know that most of our folks are actually just minding their business, just trying to get a good night's sleep, and they have these huge lights shined on them. So, and that's something, like I said, we deal with it year-round, but particularly around the West Indian Day Parade in mm-hmm. September, Labor Day weekend, we get just 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 wild levels, aggressive policing, people being stopped, mm-hmm. people not being able to walk around their neighborhoods in the ways that they want to. So. So that's sort of what it looks like in a hyper-local context. I think more broadly, we see the things that people are generally used to around the city with policing, which is just 
of high, just high police presence, both in the streets and on the subways. We see really just aggress- an aggressive nature when people are being, uh, like, people are often wrongfully arrested, but also mm-hmm. in the course of getting arrested, we will often get videos from our members of people being brutalized while being arrested. So there's a way that there are, there are specific local issues that we're trying to fight. And then there's also the, the broader context of policing, the police state just really mm-hmm. being aggressive towards black and brown folks. Well, definitely, definitely. And, and, you know, as somebody who has worked on these issues in New York City and in collaboration actually with Brooklyn Movement Center, I you know, second everything you were just saying, and that this <laughs> this is a, a long and at times frustrating fight. But, you know, I, I think the work that you guys are doing has been very effective and is, is very important. So keep doing what you're doing. Marielle, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the Buffalo Police Department? You know, Anthony mentioned aggressive car stops, and that kind of rang a bell for me. But you want to tell us kind of what's going on with Buffalo Police and some of the strategies Black Love has been using to to push back against that stuff? Sure. So also a common practice that happens in Buffalo is that they have these roadblocks, the checkpoints, very similar to like what Anthony was saying. So they just, what we have noticed, like their pattern is that they set them up in our like east side of Buffalo, Mm -hmm. mostly everywhere east of like Main Street. And we're noticing that the way they started setting them up was in such a way that even if you did try to turn around, you would still get have to be looped around back to the checkpoint. So people are getting caught in these checkpoints multiple times a day, sometimes just trying to leave the house to go to the store, but there'll be like multiple checkpoints set up. So you couldn't get through, even like you couldn't get through the neighborhood. So when that was happening, we also noticed that was also at the same time when the state had allowed the city to keep the revenue that was generated through tickets. Mm. So then the police, with that in mind, started ticketing people more aggressively. So if someone had tenant windows, they're getting ticketed for every window. And we're also seeing like people getting pulled out of their cars and searched illegally. There's police officers who go into people's cars and confiscate things and then keep it in pocket, pocket it like, how do you have this much money and just taking it? There's a lot of illegal policing practices that started happening as well as there's like individual police officers who like to target certain people who kind of like get this relationship going with certain people in the city and have led to death. In fact, there's been five police-related deaths of our residents, and two or three of those, the police had already had previous encounters with those men, like of harassing them. So that's also a major concern of black and brown residents. If they have these relationships with police officers that have gotten very aggressive and violent in the past, and those same officers will come back and harass them. And the work that we're doing is that we are, the for as far as like holding the checkpoints in these tickets and these illegal ticketing practices accountable is that we have become um, organizational plaintiffs in the lawsuit against the city to put pressure on them to end these practices and also admit that the wrongdoing that has happened in the name of generating more revenue through ticketing. And we've been doing that by talking to people at where they're paying their tickets, like literally going down to City Hall and meeting with people 
and just having conversations with them and building relationships from there. A lot of people are very upset, but also are apprehensive because they do know that we have officers in the city that like to target and put pressure on people for even speaking about like that these things are sharing their experiences. So there's like there's an element of fear with residents, but also longing for change. Now, you guys both, I think, mentioned in your comments this issue of, you know, police abusing citizens or residents and, you know, violating their rights. And I guess that raised for me the question around accountability or maybe I should say lack of accountability for police officers. Antonine, is that something that BMC and and you have had, you know, worked on or, or tried to address in some of the work you've been doing here in New York? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we fight on an on the ongoing basis against the general policies and abuse and discrimination of the NYPD. And then there's a track that we can't really plan for. There's the rapid response work, which yeah. is, you know, I think it's the thing that people don't really think about when they see a video of someone getting killed by police, which is the organizing work that immediately needs to happen to make sure that there is a community response that lets the NYPD know that the people who are killed were loved and that they're valued parts of our community and that it's actually not okay for the NYPD to aggressively gun them down or strangle them or punch them in the face, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of accountability, I mean, we've definitely worked on several cases against in central Brooklyn, most notably, we worked on the case of Saeed Vassal, who was killed by an NYPD officer on April 4th, uh, or I should say four NYPD officers on April 4th, 2018. They thought that he had a gun, he was unarmed, they left their car after after 10 minutes, 10 seconds after they exited their car, they actually shot 10 bullets at him. So this is so this is a case that, that we worked on in Central Brooklyn, but we've also worked to get accountability for officers who have killed folks like Ramarley Graham and Eric Garner, also in New York City. And and you know, I think the it's really awesome being on this podcast with Marielle because we've actually given some support to Black Love Resistance Arrest, partially because there's no playbook for how do you actually hold an officer accountable, right? I think it's it's different in every jurisdiction. Yeah. And when you talk about organizing, there are some basic organizing pieces that are going to be the same in every context. And so much of this work is happens because we were able to work in concert, right? Like, I mean, I'm if I if I was able to do any kind of work supporting the family of Sahid Basel, it's because I was trained and supported by folks who have been doing this work for several decades. So it, it's great to see Blur doing this amazing work and be able to hold them down as well. Awesome. That's that's really great to hear. Mario, I know, you know, picking up from what Antonine just was talking about, I know that Blur has done some work in response to some of the police killings in Buffalo. I know most recently we had... Um, Rafael Rivera, who was shot and killed by BPD, I guess, last year. And I know that Black Love was in, involved in, in the response, the community response to that. Could you talk a little bit about the work that you all have done um, in responding to some of these, you know, awful police killings? Yeah. So actually, we're, we're coming up on the anniver- the one-year anniversary of the last person that the police killed, which who was Marcus Neal. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of what the work, there's, I feel like there's a lot of, there's layers to it because there's first holding the space that a life has been, a life has been lost by the hands of the people who are supposed to, that are sworn to protect us, but in reality are just here to contain us. So there's like holding space for people to mourn the loss of those lives. And then there is like the gathering of try, of us determining how, what does accountability look like for the officers and for the family in this case. And then, and that has been in the, the years that I've been with Blur, we've done that by, it looks in different ways. Like sometimes it does look like us having actions where we are disturbing, disrupting, you know, common council meetings or any any other, not common, just council, but like the mayor just holding like those elected officials and asking them like, how are we going to, asking if they will like actually fire these officers or remove these officers from their positions. Because the other thing that we see and have, have had a problem with is that the officers may go on leave for a little bit. And this is a thing that happens in other parts of the city, I mean, the country, but the officers will go on leave and then they'll be like put into schools as resource officers. So our ba- main thing was for a while, and still is, we made a list of demands of what we would like, of what accountability looks like for us as residents and directly impacted people and demanding as much as possible like that these be met. And we did get the win a year or two ago. Uh, yes, so two years ago now, I was getting the strike force disbanded where a lot of the officers who were causing harm were on that and were just going around being aggressive and terrorizing like black and brown neighborhoods for the sake of that they had the power to do so. And although like that got this, although that's no, the strike force no longer exists, the officers are still employed. So uh, a thing that we, what we have been still in the practice of doing is holding that we demand that those officers be fired, that they be held accountable and just rallying around the families and making sure that we know that, that they know that we still support them and that we still are in this fight with them to get justice for their, their loved ones that have gone. And it and also has been building relationships with those families, getting closer to them, and just knowing that if we are in this with them beyond just doing, like on the street screaming or, you know, like going to different offices, but we can also share in their joy. And that's like been a, a great thing to be a part of too, to be able to see families ex- like experiencing moments of joy. Like over the summer, we were able to go to, not, yes, you said his name, Rivera. Raphael, Raphael, when he was, his, like his niece had a birthday and we were invited. So we, we went to the birthday and supported that. So it's like, we still have relationships with these families and um, we have, it feels like we are bound up with them beyond the just the trauma that they've experienced, but we can also experience the joy. And that's an important thing to lift up as, as a part of this work is that there is like some healing, there is healing that comes in, into play that should be lifted up. And, and it's just as important as getting the strike force disbanded is that we are still able to experience joy and still able to help and see these families heal beyond what has happened. Well, that's, that's really amazing work that you guys are doing on that front. I think it's something that folks don't often think about, at least, you know, folks who listen to this podcast think about like just the human element, you know, supporting the families of the folks that you work with. And actually on that 
point, Anthony, and I know you and BMC continue to do a lot of work with Mr. Vassell's family. And can you talk a little bit about that? And then also, I think it's really great how some of the families of other victims of NYPD um, brutality, how they've kind of gotten to know and made connections with each other and how that has impacted the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. And and I really want to lift up what Marielle is saying about like folks needing to experience joy. I think that when when a member of someone's family is killed by the NYPD, of course it's a tragedy because there's a death, right? Like just just for the basic that basic reason. But then to couple within that the way that the NYPD actually takes people uh, the savagery of of the murders and then also the aftermath, right? So with Saeed's family, I remember his mom just being, one of the things she was most upset about was that after the NYPD killed her son, they started slandering him in the press and they started saying, you know, she came out, there was a the rally the day after his death. She wasn't going to come out and she saw a news report that said that her son was homeless and she's like, my son was not homeless. My son lived with me. And even if he was homeless, how would that justify the NYPD killing him in the street like a dog, right? So when when we work and fight with families, we are fighting for our dignity. We're fighting for our joy. We're fighting for the love of our communities and really just the freedom to be able to walk around as peacefully as people with money and people who are white and people who live on the Upper West Side, right? Like like people in Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy want to walk around their streets just as freely as someone can walk around the Upper West Side and, and not feel like they're going to get shot or strangled or what have you. And working, working with the Vassal family has been so incredibly powerful because this, I mean, this is a family, right? I think in the most traditional sense, where you've got these these two, this like very traditional nuclear Jamaican immigrant family where you've got this mom and this dad who are really strong and love their kids and really intentionally raise their 10 kids all together here. And these are people who really love each other and their, their love for each other really extends to wanting to get justice for Saeed and making sure that the officers that killed him get off the force. And and they also, I think what's been beautiful about their work, how they've been transformed is they said, you know, we didn't know how many people in the community, how many people on our street actually knew Saeed until after he died. And all these people started telling me, oh, he used to walk. Like there's a nurse on their block that he used to walk to the train station at four in the morning to make sure she would get there wow. safely. And, like, there are people who he would help, so many people who he would help carry their bags or carry their laundry in the neighborhood. And it's it's been really powerful to see them really become more connected to their community through this tragedy and wanting to do more work, more policing work in their actual neighborhood, making sure that people know their rights um, as a part of that memory. That's... Amazing. So both of your y'all's organizations, I know, have also built relationships with, you know, Movement for Black Lives and are familiar with, you know, a lot of their policy priorities. I mean, one of the things that 
you know, they talk a lot about is the whole invest divest um, issue around policing and police departments. And, you know, I know Mariel uh, Blur has done a lot of work on the city budget and, and advocating for things around that. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about just this whole notion, maybe explain to people what this invest divest is and how it relates to policing and, and some of the work that Blur has done on, on these issues? Our city budget is very interesting. <laughs> every year that every year we see an increase in the police budget. But like with the increase of the police budget, we don't see like it doesn't like reflect that the police are actually doing their job. We still have high homicide rates. We still have high crime, quote unquote, rates that go unchecked, unsolved. So with that being said, we believe and have done work to get that money, that all that extra money that goes into the police budget, which is just going basically into funding, making sure that the police officers are getting pay raises. Instead of like increasing the pay of the police officers, we would like to see that that money go back into the communities in which need it. So having more money go into participatory budgeting, which would give people in the community the power to decide how the money is used. In the past, we had amazing turnouts to the Common Council meeting to reinstate like participatory budgeting. And because a lot of people in our community and Buffalo in general would like to see that money coming back into the community, giving residents the power to decide what it looks like to have safer and better communities. So the last time we did participatory budgeting, there was like a crew of residents who were able to get some garbage receptacles and recycling receptacles on the east side of Buffalo. And that was like a big thing. That was a big one because we had asked for, oh, I forgot the dollar amount of money, but we're given like 1%, which was still, it was still a win. So I'm looking forward to going back this year and like us pushing again for participatory budgeting and having that be a thing. And also like as far as the lawsuit, we're also hoping to like the monies that have been used to revenue, like through the traffic stops, those being funds that can get again pulled back into the city and, and put into funds like participatory budgeting. Great. That, that sounds like really important but very difficult work. And you know, anything we can do here to support that, we just let us know. Anthony, down here in New York City, we are dealing with a, a billion-dollar police department, the largest in, I think, in, in definitely in North America, if not bigger. You know, Larger for, than the yeah. militaries of some small countries. For exactly, sure. exactly, and and seems to, I mean, seems to expand every day, and they create these new units. Like you know, the one that comes to mind is the the famous, now infamous, strategic response group. That you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about them. But is there work going on here in New York City around the police department's budget and and how you know bloated it is, and maybe ways that we need to actually decrease the size or the reach of the NYPD as opposed to increasing it? Yeah, absolutely. So we have actually very recently started doing some work around trying to get actually Governor Cuomo to not invest in 500 new cops in the subway Mm. and instead to invest into subway improvements. So it's a a little bit different, I think, than some of the work that's happening in Buffalo currently because we're not proactively addressing 
the city or state budget, but there really was just this particular directive from the governor that we think is, in a word, ridiculous, right? I think if you're in New York City, if you take the subways these days, no one is saying, I want more police officers. What people are saying is that the subways are overcrowded, and they're saying that the, you can't get anywhere on time, and that the subways are always breaking down. And this feels like a much more clear grassroots priority to us than putting more police officers in the subways. So so that's one particular request that we're making or demand that we're making currently. Down the line, I mean, I see, I definitely see a lot of work to come around the policing budget. And, you know, I think that there's been an acknowledgement for um, quite some time that the police are definitely playing roles that are not appropriate for police, right? That, that, that um, particularly in schools, we see like a lot of disciplinary issues being dealt with more with school safety agents versus guidance counselors. And we've heard the NYPD say themselves that they're not guidance counselors and they're not social workers. And yet they have a lot of money in their budget for things like social work. So I, I think we want to really be able to see that money go to organizations that have the experience, that have the depth, that have the people who know what they're doing and really can do real social work as opposed to criminalizing lots of different social ills, whether that's in education or in the subway or mental health. I, that's uh, All of that is absolutely on point, and, and I would add as a – New York City subway rider myself, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for <laughs> doing that work on the the subway police because it is absolutely ridiculous and a, a giant waste of money. What what did it, they said it was going to be two hundred and fifty million dollars or something to to pay for these cops to I guess basically write tickets if people jump a turnstile. So I I thank you guys for doing that work for sure. So I guess. One of the last things I wanted to ask you both about is uh, transparency or lack, I guess, thereof when it comes to police. You you both mentioned that you know when when there's a police killing and and there's a community response, one of the demands oftentimes will be you know to get rid of the officers or fire them you know immediately because they have no business being police officers. But uh, of course, a challenge for that there's many challenges, but one of the challenges is actually first finding out who they are. <laughs> and Anthony, I know you guys encountered this with the work you were trying to do on behalf of the Vassal family. Can you talk a little bit about that and then this thing which we we call 50A and why that's such a problem when it comes to transparency and accountability for police? Yeah, absolutely. So when what's really, really interesting um, is that when, when Saeed was killed, it took 16 weeks for the names of the four officers who killed him to be publicly released. And, and when they were released, the de Blasio administration released that information as a media leak, right? They didn't, they didn't publicly announce that these are the four, these are the names of the four officers and these are the disciplinary charges that they'll face. Tahid was killed over a year ago, over a year and a half ago, and we still have not seen any disciplinary charges brought on any of these officers. So. This this is especially troubling because if we if we want to hold officers accountable base level we need to know their names right and this the practice of the de Blasio administration to not immediately release the names of officers involved in civilian killings 
is actually incredibly regressive, particularly if you look at cases of people who were killed by the NYPD under Mayors Bloomberg and Giuliani, right? So I think as a as a whole, if I were to speak about, I, or I should say, I grew up in Giuliani, New York. I was very politicized by Giuliani's really abusive and disrespectful policies of policing towards black and brown folks, particularly poor black and brown folks. And the Giuliani administration routinely released names of officers who killed civilians, right? So we're in the situation with the Blasio where we have someone who's got a great progressive face, but at the end of the day is actually standing in the way of transparency and standing away of accountability for families who did nothing to be in the situation they are where they've lost a loved one and they want someone to be held accountable. So, and that's, that's part of where 58 comes in. And, you know, we're talking on this podcast about BMC's work and also Blur's work being across the state. And I think it's sometimes it's easy to forget that the state is its own governmental jurisdiction and that there are there are penal codes, law, like there are laws that happen at the state level that govern all of our work, no matter how far we are apart. And one of those laws is 50A, and this 50A law is basically what we call a police secrecy law. So it allows jurisdictions to not release disciplinary records of police officers. And we know that that is hugely harmful to the public, right? Like. The, in New York State, you can see the disciplinary record of a massage therapist more easily than you can of a police officer, right? And police officers are the only employees, state employees, who basically have license to kill, right? So, and considering that the, the police most often abuse and discriminate against uh, poor black and brown folks, there's a clear message that our state legislature is sending to black and brown folks whose lives are at stake about the value of their lives and being able to protect the public from people who would want to take away those highly valued lives. So BMC is fighting alongside folks like CCR uh, and other members of Community United for Police Reform to make sure that our, that our state legislature actually stands up for black and brown around the state and says actually we need transparency on discipline. That's actually the first step to holding anyone accountable. Absolutely. And Mario, could you tell us a little bit about the issues y'all are having in Buffalo with both, you know, transparency in terms of getting the names of the officers who who do kill, and then also the the process. I guess I guess in Buffalo, it's internal affairs. The process or lack thereof when it comes to trying to hold these officers accountable for the you know crimes that they've committed. We haven't had the issue of knowing the names. We've known the names pretty early on. The news has been actually great about that. Like covering, getting a release of the names hasn't been an issue. But like what has been an issue is like the whole internal internal affairs. Debacle in a lot of the earlier cases of um, when the police were involved, they were calling the police involved deaths mm-hmm. of civilians. Was that it was unclear who all was at the scene. So when an AG investigated two of the deaths and found it inconclusive because the only eyewitnesses were the police officers and they refused to give their testimony. So outside of that, the city is pretty 
like, as I say, are not going to touch it and inve- investigating the deaths, but they're like, if there's any investigation needed, any investigation needed, they defer it to the state. And then the state has been also like, well, we can't do much if the city isn't willing to cooperate or the officers aren't willing to cooperate. So it's like just in these two camps kind of like siloing themselves off to not work with each other. And also the, um, like that Blue, the, the blue color of silence or whatever it's called. I forget what it's called. But yeah, blue wall. That's a, yeah, the blue wall. I knew something was blue. It's very real. real. Um, and even when we've had officers in the past, like Carrie Horn, who have spoken out or tried to speak about the things that were happening in the Buffalo Police Department, we see them, we see the officers getting arrested or we see them being, and also being harassed by, you know, like their former coworkers and by the city. So there's no incentive for any officers to actually speak about what's going on because they're going to be put pressure onto them kind of fall in line with already illegally happening and what's already the brutality that's already happening so there's no transparency and there also isn't really any from our like from the top down like from the mayor to the city council there's not really much that they want to like input that they are willing to apply in this or again they're like these are things that an outside investigation will have to take care of. So there's no transparency, and and it's very upsetting and frustrating to try to work within those within those things and like figuring out how you know like we insert ourselves to get that transparency and put in. Um, so that's still a process we're working within. Well, I guess that brings me to I guess the the last question I have for both of y'all is. You you mentioned earlier that you all have – this is not the first time you guys are talking to each other. You all have been able to establish relationships over the 400 miles between your where you all live. And, and can you maybe start with Marielle and then let Anthony add to it? Can you talk a little bit about how your two organizations have made connection and how that has, you know, benefited your organization, your respective organization? I would say it is through, like, this – there's a – currently like through the statewide effort to connect um, Black-led organizations that have drawn us together. And that has been helpful for us in Buffalo because it's not only are we all up here, but it's also like great to know like the resources and the techniques and what's working downstate and what ways that we can try to implement and things new that we can try. And also it's better just to have like a connection and know like that feeling of not being isolated and in this work alone. Although like we know there's like the the broader movement of which um, organizations are trying to hold the police accountable being in contact with organizations in our own state that are doing the same work and have had wins and it helps us to be more empowered to what's possible and gives us hope of what we can also build towards and what power looks like. Oh, absolutely. And Anthony, what has it been like to, to connect with groups doing similar work on the other side of the state? I mean, I mentioned I grew up in uh, Giuliani's New York. And I would say that up until maybe a couple of years ago, I thought that everything north of maybe Van Cortland was a state, right? <laughs> so, there's, you know, New York State is a funny place. It's very New York City-centric in a lot of ways. And, and New Yorkers, we definitely think that our universe is, like, that, that New York City is the center of all the universe. And it's been incredibly powerful to be in so many different Black organizing spaces with Blur folks. 
particularly building those connections of like what does black organizing look like throughout the state how do we support our, our, each other and you know when you're fighting for when you're fighting against institutions white supremacy and capitalism and heteropatriarchy it starts it, it sometimes feels very difficult to sort of come out of those fights and have a sense of what a, a broader movement for Black liberation looks like. And part of what's been great has been being able to connect with groups like Blur about the work that they're doing. And, and as I mentioned before, to, to offer um, resources that we have available, because I think, you know, there's, there's between CPR and before CPR, um, Cat B, in New York City, there's been several decades of highly well-organized um, efforts against uh, just police hegemony. And it's been amazing for me to be physically here and to draw upon that. But as we're trying to do good work, not just in New York City, but to around Black liberation throughout the entire state, it's, it's been powerful to be able to share some of those resources and to share some of that work with folks in other parts of the state. and. And you know, Buffalo is a Buffalo is a huge city, right? Like Buffalo is a, a huge part of of New York State, and it, it there's a way almost it seems ridiculous for us to be doing work and to not be connecting to struggles in Buffalo, in Newburgh, in Elmont on Long Island, right? So I, I just think that it's good organizing to be in conversations with people who are facing the same things that you're facing and be able to learn and grow with them. Absolutely. Well, I I would really love to keep talking to you guys, but unfortunately we are out of time. Um, so I want to thank both Antonine and Marielle for this really, really, really great discussion today. And I guess I would ask both of you, maybe Antonine first, if folks want to find out more about BMC's work or how to get involved, where where should they go to get that information? Yeah, absolutely. You can go on our website, which is brooklynmovementcenter.org, all spelled out. And then you can also find us on the socials, so on uh, Twitter and Instagram uh, at BK Movement and Brooklyn Movement Center on Facebook. Awesome. And uh, Marielle, where can folks go to learn more about Black Love's work? Yes, we have a website. It's called Black Love Resist with the S at the end and the rust.org and we are on facebook at black love resist in the rust as well as on twitter fantastic and yeah i will also let the listeners know that we will have those links on the podcast website so folks can also link to both of these amazing organizations there thank you both again for joining me today and yeah best of luck with everything and we're obviously following your work very closely so Thank you for all that you do, and uh, take care. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. And now for our Center for Constitutional Rights News Roundup. Here's some of what we've been up to since our last episode. We were in Arizona to launch a report and file a case against ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. ALEC is the pay-to-play bill mill that brings together corporations, right-wing activists, and legislators from all over the country to draft model legislation. ALEC is responsible for the NRA-conceived Stand Your Ground law. 
critical infrastructure laws that are meant to protect oil and gas pipelines and punish protesters, anti-boycott laws, and voter ID laws. As the report shows, so many of these laws target communities of color. You can check it out at alecattacks.org. We also sued the Arizona legislator for violating Arizona's open meeting law. A quorum of members of five legislative committees were registered to attend Alec's closed-door annual policy summit in Scottsdale. It really gets to the heart of Alec's secrecy and influence. Meanwhile, we are in The Hague taking part in three days of hearings before the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Court. Attorneys representing victims of the U.S. torture program argued to reverse a decision that blocked the ICC prosecutor from investigating the grave crimes committed under the program. The prosecutor had sought to investigate alleged crimes against humanity and war crimes committed in Afghanistan and on the territory of other implicated states' parties. The perpetrators included U.S. armed forces and members of the CIA, the Taliban, and affiliated armed groups, and Afghan government forces. This case is the first and only time the highest criminal court in the world has considered whether the United States will be investigated and called to account for its torture program. In another appeal, we were in Miami for arguments representing indigenous Bolivians. We were joined by our co-counsel at Harvard Law School's Human Rights Clinic and Aiken Gump, and our clients Eloy and Eltovina Mamani, whose eight-year-old daughter was killed by government forces during a 2003 massacre. Together, we urged the court to reinstate a unanimous jury judgment against Bolivia's former president, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, and former defense minister, Carlos Sanchez Berzain, for the roles in the massacre. And our Guantanamo team was in court arguing for our client, Abdul Razak Ali, also known as Saeed Makuch, who had been detained at Guantanamo without charge since June 2002. His case is part of a collective challenge to Trump's Guantanamo policies on behalf of Ali and 10 other men. We argued that without due process, the men at Guantanamo faced detention for life. The Supreme Court struck down attempts to gut constitutional protections against arbitrary detention at Guantanamo two times. But since then, the lower courts have made it effectively impossible to win a case in court, no matter how weak the government's evidence is. We asked the court to finally provide detainees the fair process the Supreme Court envisioned 10 years ago. Forty men remain detained at Guantanamo. Twenty-eight of them have never been charged. Twenty-seven were held by the CIA at some point during their detention. Five have been unanimously cleared for release by all relevant agencies, including the State Department, FBI, and the military. Over the years, some of the men at Guantanamo made art, and some has been exhibited in galleries here. Through January, you can see some of these works in a must-see exhibition of prison art at the Drawing Center in Manhattan called The Pencil is a Key. It is an exhibition of historical and contemporary drawings by incarcerated people from all over the globe. And finally, we capped off our landmark lawsuit over NYPD's blanket discriminatory surveillance of New Jersey Muslims, Hassan v. City of New York. Plaintiffs and members of the New Jersey Muslim community met face-to-face with senior city and NYPD officials to detail the harm caused to Muslim communities by the NYPD's surveillance program and to demand accountability. Partners at Muslim Advocates settled in April 2018. It was a powerful day when those harmed could speak their truth to those in power.
AF. The real AF. Yeah, I just need you to say the real AF. The real AF. This is the real AF. I'm Rob Santiago. I'm Leah Todd. And we're here with Sharice, our amazing grant writer here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Are you ready, Sharice? Yes. All right. Let's get it popping. Would you rather have all your music on cassette tape or CD? CD. Vinyl, really, but CD. You didn't ask about vinyl, but CD. You prefer vinyl? Who doesn't? Uh, <laughs> see, it was a trick question and she yeah, had the right answer. Go. Are you a collector of vinyl? I have all the vinyl that I had, but I haven't been collecting any lately, no. So maybe a previous collector, and now you're just kind of on pause? Yeah, well, music just sounds better on vinyl, and I just have, you know, families, mm. old vinyl and stuff, so nice. it's just nice. better. Nice. But I haven't collected it, but it's just better. It just sounds it's better. It's collected its way to you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Would you rather make a phone call or make a text? Phone call. There was no hesitation in that. No. Not a text person, or also you like to get out of the text way? Text is okay, but I just like to hear people's voices and stuff. That's nice. Got to mm-hmm. keep our humanity in this <laughs> technological world. <laughs> Would you prefer Serena Williams or Venus Williams? Venus is my favorite player, but I love Serena as well. I don't know. Her personality kind of more aligns with mine mm. a little bit. She's a little more um, of an introvert. Mm. And I just like her game better. But I love Serena. She did kind of get like her. the spotlight more so more recently. Serena, yeah. And it's like, I remember yeah. when it was the two of them, but now everything them, yeah. is Serena. Yeah. Serena's the only one in the Beyonce videos. <laughs> yeah, that's her personality. It's, you know, Venus wouldn't do that video. Yeah. Do they still do doubles? Do they play doubles? Sometimes. They haven't lately, but sometimes they still do doubles. I just like Venus's game better. She's yeah. tall. She is, when when she's on, she's better than everyone, including Serena. She just is not as consistent. Mm. Yeah. Would you rather read an awesome book or watch a really great movie? Oh, wow. I think I'd rather read an awesome book. I feel like that, that like, you have more time to let it linger with the book. Yeah. You can carry a book around with you. It's true. You have it with you all the time. Yeah. Are you reading a good book right now? I'm actually reading Repair. Oh, well, nice. finishing it, it's like, I think it's like, what, 173 pages? So you yeah. kind of like read it like, you know, a day or something, but I'm finishing it up today. Great. Nice. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's uh, a book by our board member, Catherine Frankie, about uh, reparations. I just grabbed it yesterday, so I've yet to get started, but yeah. I, I hope you're right that it's in a day. I'm, I may not be as fast a reader yeah. as you are. It's just, it's like time, I think, now when you're reading mm-hmm. books, like who has, you know, time and stuff, but that's you'll cool. feel smarter after reading this. I mean, there were some things that I didn't know. A lot of people didn't know, so. Great. That's good. Yeah. I always like to help increase my, like, self-valuation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Any little nuggets yeah, I can right. get. <laughs> Would you rather eat french fries or waffle fries? French fries. Extra crispy? Well, well done. I don't want to eat a potato chip, you know, but <laughs> just well done. <laughs> fries. Crinkle fries. Would you rather get stuck on a broken ski lift or in a broken elevator? Ski lift. You know, yeah. kind of confined in that box, which just drive me nuts. Gotcha, here. Would you rather go hiking or go camping? Like real camping. Well, camping because you can hike too. Ah, oh, see, ah, the third way again. Best of both worlds. <laughs> Look at that. As long as you can be outside in open space. Got it. I think that's that's all good. This so, has been the real AF with Sharice. Thanks so much for being here, Sharice. Thanks, Sharice. You're welcome. 
Thank you.